We live in a day of instant communication. When something happens somewhere around the world, we are able to see pictures of the event immediately or almost immediately. Sometimes we see live pictures, and sometimes the pictures we see are taken right after the event has taken place. For example, although we live hundreds and hundreds of miles from Louisiana, we were able to see the astonishing flood that decimated New Orleans back in 2005. When an earthquake hit northwestern Turkey in 1999, it killed over 14,000 people and rendered over 200,000 homeless. We saw scenes of that devastation within minutes. On May 13, 2008, a massive earthquake hit China and it killed approximately 10,000 people, injuring thousands more. We saw footage of the immense damage within minutes. The tsunami in Southeast Asia that came ashore in 2004 killed over 230,000 people. That's almost a quarter of a million people. And we saw the pictures in a matter of minutes. It's a remarkable day and age in which we live. Another thing that is fascinating about all of this is the fact that when these kinds of monumental events take place somewhere in the world, the rest of the world goes right on living as if nothing happened. Now, I'm not suggesting that all the rest of the world can stop or ought to stop, but it is amazing how life goes on in some parts of the world when other parts of the world are experiencing catastrophic disasters. For some people, life virtually comes to a standstill. For others, it goes right on without missing a beat. That is the way it's going to be at the end of the age. The Bible tells us that during the future tribulation period, there are going to be cataclysmic events taking place on this planet. The Jewish people in the land of Israel are going to face the most severe persecution they have ever faced. It will almost annihilate them. Other places in the world are going to experience colossal earthquakes, gargantuan hailstones, severe famine, widespread plagues, scorched earth conditions, water turned to blood, and other extraordinary catastrophes. Yet during this time, Jesus indicated that for some people, life will go on as normal in the world. People are going to get married and continue with the normal daily responsibilities and obligations of life. They won't even realize that all of these unprecedented events taking place on planet Earth are a sign and a prelude to the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. Amazingly, they will totally be caught surprised when Jesus returns. Jesus tells us about that in Mark chapter 13, and I invite you to turn there with me one final time as we complete this morning our trek through the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel. <clears throat> Please follow along as I read verses 24 through 37, although our focus 
will be verses 32 through 37 this morning. But we'll begin reading in verse 24. Jesus said, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that he is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. We have been considering this chapter of Scripture for several weeks now because it is so full of information and so important for us to understand. This chapter is called the Olivet Discourse. It is called that because Jesus spoke these words to his disciples when he was somewhere on the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. Back in verse 4, the disciples of Jesus asked him about the consummation of all things. They understood that when Jesus came forth in glory and majesty to take his throne as the Messiah of Israel, that would be the end of this present age, and it would usher in the kingdom age, the next age. So they asked Jesus when this would happen. This discourse is his answer. Jesus told them in verses 5 through 23 about a time of tribulation that will come upon this earth. It will be so severe that the only word you could use to describe it would be unprecedented. We know from other passages of Scripture that this is a description of the future seven-year tribulation period. Immediately after that time, Jesus will return to this earth. That is specifically what he says in verse 24. He says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power, great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Jesus is coming back to this earth in power and splendor and glory. All the events of the tribulation period 
are a prelude and a precursor to his coming. Therefore, the people who are here on planet earth at that time and are willing to learn what scripture says about the end of the age should know that the coming of Jesus is near once they begin to see all these events unfold. And that is exactly what Jesus said in the very next verse. He says, verse 28, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that he is near at the doors. So once the events of the tribulation period begin to take place, people should know that the coming of Jesus to this earth is right around the corner. But you know what? There will be a lot of people on planet earth who don't care. They won't be interested in his second coming. They weren't interested in his first coming, and they won't be interested in his second coming. All they will want to do is to continue on with life as normal and without interruption. Thus, they will be caught completely by surprise when Jesus returns and takes them away into judgment. If they had any interest in being right with God and being ready for the second coming of Jesus, they could easily read the signs of the times. All they would have to do is watch the news to see all that is taking place around the world and then read their Bibles to see what it means. Then they would know. But they won't have any desire to pay attention to what Scripture says about the events that lead up to the end of the age. That is why Jesus gives this warning in verses 32 through 37. Notice what he says here in the final verses of the Olivet Discourse in Mark's account. Verse 32, he says, But of that day, and the day he's referring to is the, the one that he described, described in verses 24 and 25 and 26, his second coming. So he says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Before we consider the primary point of this verse, let me make a brief comment on the phrase, nor the Son, that is found here in this verse. That phrase is so confusing to many people because they can't understand how Jesus can be God and be omniscient, yet not know the day and the hour of his, of his return. The solution to that perplexing issue is to realize that during the time of his incarnation, when Jesus was here on earth, he did not always use his attributes of deity. For example, he didn't usually manifest his omnipresence, right? Because he was in one place at a time. In the same way, he didn't often access his omniscience. That's why he can say here in this verse that he didn't even know the day and hour of his return. I mean, what we are celebrating at this time of the year is the answer to this perplexing issue. We're celebrating the incarnation. And during the incarnation, Jesus came to be a man and lived as a man. So he didn't know the day or hour of his return. He does know it now. And he could have known it then if the Father had wanted him 
to access his omniscience on that point. So don't let that phrase confuse you and don't let it sidetrack you to miss the main point Jesus is making here in this verse. In verses 28 and 29, he has just said that the events of the tribulation period will be a sign that his coming is near. However, just because those events will indicate that his coming is near, that doesn't mean that anyone will be able to give the exact day and hour of his return. That is why Jesus begins this verse with the contrast word, but. But. He says, listen, when you see all these signs, you should know it's near, but. But don't assume you can know the exact day and hour. No one knows that. People should be able to see that the time is near, but no one will be able to give the exact day and hour. That's how this verse fits in the context. It is as if Jesus is saying, when you see all these events beginning to unfold, know that my coming is near. However, don't think you can predict the exact day and hour, because you can't. No one will be able to do that. And frankly, some people won't even be interested in doing it. They won't care at all. If the events of the tribulation period haven't affected their lives, or even if they have, they will simply want to go on with life as usual. So in verse 33, Jesus says, Take heed. Watch. He's saying, Pay attention. Pray. For you do not know when the time is. This will have specific application to those who are living during the tribulation days of the end times. When they see the events of verses 5 through 23 taking place, they should be looking heavenward and anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now there is no way they will be able to know the exact day and, and hour or hour of his return, but as he said in verses 28 and 29, they certainly should be able to read the signs of the times, and that should cause them to be watching. They should be making sure they are ready for his return. Jesus is, is exhorting expectancy and preparedness. Don't get, get caught sleeping, is what he is saying. And then he illustrates his point. He says, verse 34, It is like a man going to a far country, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. This was an illustration to which the people of that day could immediately relate. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. The master goes away, and he leaves things to the care of his servants. Some of the servants will be faithful and do good, but some will take advantage of the master's absence to do evil. That's what is going on now here on planet Earth, but it will really get worse near the end. During the days of the end times, the people of the earth will be exceedingly wicked. In fact, to show you how wicked they will be, Turn over with me to Revelation chapter 9 for just a moment. <clears throat> this chapter describes some of the judgments that will be taking place during the tribulation period. Some of these judgments will take the form of various kinds of plagues. So we read in verse 18... 
By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Now you would think that this kind of judgment that's described here in chapter 9 would bring about repentance on the part of those who will remain alive. But that won't happen. Their wickedness and their rebellion will be so strong that they will simply harden their hearts even more. So we read in verse 20, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries, By the way, some manuscripts have the word drugs there because of the close relationship between sorcery and drugs. So they will not repent of their sorceries, their drugs, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. That will be the response to the judgments that should bring about repentance in a person's heart. Then skip over to chapter 16 for another illustration. This chapter records some of the other judgments that will hit the earth in the future seven-year tribulation period. And what we're especially interested in noticing here this morning is the response of people. The response that you would anticipate is repentance, humbling of self, but it's not the response that will be given. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Once again, you would think that such judgments would bring about repentance in the hearts of those who remain here on the planet. But that's not what will happen. Verse 9 tells us, And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Now this is remarkable. These people will know. They will know that the torments they are experiencing are an expression of God's wrath against sin and wickedness but they won't let go of their rebellion. 
They will continue to harden their hearts against the God of heaven, and they will try to proceed with life, viewing these judgments as an interruption of their own plans for life. That is exactly what Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse. Now back to Mark chapter 13. So in verse 35, Jesus says this of Mark 13, verse 35, Watch therefore, watch, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. You see, Jesus may come back sooner than people think, or he may delay longer than expected. If he comes back sooner than people think, it will be easy for many to be unprepared and not ready. If he delays longer than expected, the tendency is to assume that he's not coming for a long, long time, or maybe not at all. Both assumptions, both conditions are deadly. Let me explain. If Jesus comes sooner than anticipated and people are unprepared, they will find themselves swept away in judgment. If Jesus delays longer than expected and people put off the decision to get right with him until a later date, they will find themselves swept away into judgment. So Jesus says, watch, therefore. Be ready. If you are not ready, the miscalculation is not trivial. The miscalculation is not minimal. It is eternal. Think about that. It is eternal. This passage, of course, in its context, is it's about being ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth at the end of the age. But its principles apply to you and to me right here today. Let me explain what I mean. What is it, think about this question with me, what is it that keeps people in our day and age from committing their lives to Christ? What is it? I would submit to you that it is seldom, seldom a vehement opposition to the Lord Jesus and to the gospel. Now there is certainly some of that in our culture and it seems to be increasing, but I think there is far less of that than there is of disinterested preoccupation disinterested preoccupation. What I mean is there are scores of people in our world, in our society, who don't actively resist Christ and fight against the gospel. They don't write books against the gospel and make speeches against the gospel, but they just have too many things on their plates to even give time to think about the issue. Life is full of all kinds of activities responsibilities, obligations. So people go through life eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, carrying out the activities of life. They are just too busy and disinterested to give time to think about their eternal destiny and their relationship with Jesus Christ. For them, the call of the gospel on their lives is a nuisance. It's just an interference. They don't want to be bothered with it. 
That's what keeps them from committing their lives to Christ. It is disinterested preoccupation. They may not be antagonistic against the gospel, but they are far too preoccupied with the mundane matters of life. And that's what we see in Matthew's extended account of this discourse. Matthew gives two chapters to the Olivet Discourse, whereas Mark gives one. So Matthew has even more material or more to say on this subject. So I'd like us to spend the balance of our time in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. And notice what Jesus said here in this account that Mark chose not to put in his account. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. And of course we know from Mark's account, he says, Nor, the, nor even the Son, but my Father only. Then he says this, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, life was proceeding as usual for people when they should have been keenly aware that judgment was coming. This was especially true for those who knew that Noah was building the ark. Think about this. The act of him building a huge boat for 120 years should have been an attention getter, but people ignored the sign and went right on with life. That's what some people will do in the future tribulation period. The signs will be all around them, but they won't pay any attention to the signs whatsoever. They will carry on with eating and drinking, marriages and banquets, and other activities of life. So the coming of Jesus in judgment will take them away, just like the flood did in Noah's day. Verse 39 tells us, And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Now watch what Jesus does here. He makes application. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus draws the parallel for us specifically. The people in Noah's day were preoccupied with the activities of life when they should have noticed that judgment was coming right around the corner. 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness during the time he was building the ark. He called on people to repent he called on people to avoid the coming judgment. But they weren't interested in hearing what he had to say. They just wanted to go on with their lives. In the same way, Jesus says, during the future tribulation period, the people of this world will have ample opportunity to see and hear warnings about the impending judgment. Revelation 7 says there will be 144,000 special witnesses 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel warning about the coming judgment and telling of the coming kingdom. In addition, Revelation 11 tells about two very special witnesses who will have the ability to do miraculous signs 
to validate their message. Not only that, Revelation 14 mentions an angel that will be flying around in the sky having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Every person on planet earth without exception will hear the gospel during the tribulation period. This angel will warn men and women of the judgment that is at hand. But many of the people on earth will completely disregard the warnings and simply see them as a nuisance to their own plans. So just as those in Noah's day who wouldn't repent were taken away in judgment, those who are here when Jesus returns and have not repented will be taken away in judgment. And that's what Jesus says in the next verse. He says, verse 40, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. As I'm sure you know, a lot of Christians use these verses to describe the rapture. And they say that one will be taken into heaven and the other will be left behind. That interpretation completely ignores the context of what Jesus is saying here. He is talking about judgment. The one who is taken in this passage is not taken into heaven, but rather taken into judgment. Who was taken away in verse 39, the verse just prior to this? It was all the unbelievers who were taken away by the flood. They were taken away in judgment. The flood took them away in judgment. Who will be taken away here in verse 40, in verse 41? The unbelievers will be taken away in judgment, and the believers will remain here on the earth to enter the millennial kingdom, which is what takes place after the second coming. Verse 41 uses another illustration. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Again, I say, the one who is taken is taken away in judgment, and the one who is left behind is left here on the earth to enter the millennial kingdom. I can't help but wonder if these words have specific application to the Jewish people who will be alive here on the planet and scattered around the world at the time of the second coming. The reason why I say that is because almost all of this chapter is focused on the Jewish people. And also because over in chapter 25, Jesus tells us about all the Gentiles who will be gathered together for the sheep and goat judgment. So that's what makes me wonder if the Jewish people who will be alive here on the planet and scattered around the world at the time of the second coming are the primary focus of these words. Now, we can't say for sure because even though Jesus and the other writers of Scripture tell us a great deal about the events of the end times, they don't give us all the details and they don't answer all our questions. However, the point of this section is clear. Jesus is warning that there are going to be people who will be completely caught off guard when he returns to this earth at the end of the tribulation period. They'll be completely blindsided. But it's their own fault. There's no reason why they should be blindsided. And so he gives the following exhortation in verse 42. He says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now again, this will have specific application to those who are living during the tribulation days of the end times. 
When they see the events of verses 4 through 22 of this chapter taking place, they should be looking heavenward and anticipating the coming of Jesus to this earth. There is no way they will be able to know the exact day or hour of his return, but as he said in verses 32 and 33, they should be able to read the signs of the times, and that should cause them to be watching. They should make sure they are watching and ready for his return. Jesus is exhorting expectancy, preparedness. Don't get caught sleeping, is what he is saying. And then he uses that same illustration, similar to that in Mark's account. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Jesus uses an illustration here to which everyone can relate. Everyone Every one of us here in this room, if you know a thief is coming, or if you know something bad is coming, you will take the necessary steps to avoid the danger and the damage that will occur. In the same way, Jesus is saying, those who see, by reading the signs of the times, those who see that Jesus is is coming in judgment, ought to do what is necessary to avoid the danger and the eternal damage that will result. You see, beloved, when Jesus comes back to this earth, he is coming in judgment. It's very easy for us to forget that. We look forward to the time when Jesus will come in the clouds to gather us to himself, but that's a different issue than his second coming to the earth in judgment. There's a sense in which his second coming to the earth is not a positive thing. Sure, he will set up his kingdom when he comes back, but that is after he has carried out extensive and devastating judgment. The first thing, the very first thing Jesus is going to do when he comes back to this earth the second time is to carry out severe judgment. Revelation 19.11 says, In righteousness he judges and makes war. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, He is coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus is coming back to do. He came the first time as a lamb to save, and he will come the second time as a lion to judge. We tend to forget about that when we think of the second coming. We think of it as a positive thing. And it is that in the sense that Jesus will be exalted as he deserves to be exalted, but it will not be a positive thing for the vast majority of the people who are alive in this world when he returns. That's why Jesus gives this warning. And that is why he uses the imagery of a thief. A thief does exceeding damage to those who are unprepared for his coming. And in the same way, Jesus will do exceeding damage to those who are unprepared for his coming. He will unleash eternal damage to those who are unprepared for his coming. At first, it sounds surprising for us to hear Jesus use the illustration of a thief to refer to his second coming. That's not such a positive illustration. He compares himself to a thief. And of course, Jesus is no thief. But his point is that once you begin to see the parallels, it makes sense. Jesus is warning about unpreparedness. 
If you're not prepared for a thief, you suffer the consequences. If you're not prepared for his coming, you suffer the consequences. And so he says in verse 34, Therefore, here's his application, his, his punchline. Therefore you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In the passages we looked at from the book of Revelation, we see a segment of society that is defiant against the Lord, shaking their fist against the Lord. They're belligerent. But that's not what Jesus is describing here. These people that Jesus is describing were merely eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Some were working out in the field. Some were grinding at the mill. They were carrying on with life as usual. But they weren't ready to meet their maker. This is exactly what we see all around us today, beloved. This is exactly, this is such a, a picture, a snapshot of society. Think about our world in which we live. People are going to school. People get up and go to work. They go to play. And they may not be antagonistic in their stance against the Lord. But life has so many opportunities and so many responsibilities that they never give any thought to their eternal destiny. Do you realize how many people around you in your circles, do you realize how many people never give any thought to their eternal destiny? Just not on their radar. They have too many things to do in life. They got to go to work. They got to go to school. They got to do this. They have to do that. There are those who know that the who know that the Bible says Jesus is coming back someday. But they think it's way out there in the future somewhere. So you have all of this this mixture. You have those in society who just go on with life. They never give any thought. And then there are others who say, well, I know what the Bible says, but it's so far out there in the future, it's not really relevant. They don't think it will be soon enough to have any bearing on their lives. They may not have a vehement opposition to the teaching that Jesus is coming back. They may even be willing to acknowledge that they believe it's true, but it's irrelevant to them, so they think. So this is society. We've seen... This morning, a picture of society. You have some like those in the book of Revelation who shake their fist at God and will not repent. You have others who just don't give it any thought. They just go on with life. And others who have some thought about it, but it's like, well, it's not really relevant. Isn't that society? Isn't that people in this world? So you have all of these responses that Scripture describes to eternal preparedness or eternal unpreparedness. There are those who think they, they, they don't have time to think about the future, especially if they believe it's the far future because they have so much on their plates right now, so they just ignore it and go on with life. Now, my guess is that I'm talking to some of you today. The fact that you are here this morning probably indicates that you don't have a vehement opposition to the Lord Jesus and to the gospel. Sometimes people like that come here, but that's not the majority. What is more common is to have people come here who have some level of interest in the things of the Lord, but the activities of life are far more compelling to them and far more interesting to them and far more of an attraction to them. Is that you? Are you too preoccupied with the mundane matters of life to consider the sobering reality of eternity? 
Are you too preoccupied with the mundane matters of life to give thought to your lack of a right relationship with Jesus Christ? My fear for some of you is that you are going to go on with life. You're just going to go on with life, and all of a sudden, you will find yourself swept away in judgment. This passage, this passage presents a stunning picture of society today. Think about this. You can have two people working side by side. Maybe it's at a construction site. Maybe it's at a professional a business and they're working side by side at desks or, or, or whatever. Just two people working side by side doing the exact same thing in life. But one is ready for eternity and the other is not. These two may even be relatives. A father and a son. A mother and a daughter. Two brothers two sisters, whatever. One is ready for eternity. The other is not. Which one are you? Are you ready for eternity? That's the exhortation Jesus gives. Watch. Be ready. If you miscalculate, it's not a minimal or trivial thing. It's eternal. Let's bow together as we close. So I ask you this morning, are you ready for eternity? Are you really ready? Don't don't get so preoccupied with all of the matters of life that you ignore what is by far the most compelling and most important issue to face in life, being ready for eternity. Have you humbled yourself before the Lord Jesus? Have you called on him? As Romans 10 talks about, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you turned to him in simple, childlike faith? Don't miscalculate on this issue. Don't make a wrong assumption because the consequences are eternal. And Father, as we close our time together this morning and close our look at the Olivet Discourse from Mark chapter 13, what a What a great way for our Lord to wrap up his teaching on the future by exhorting men and women to be prepared, to be ready, to watch, to to look, to look at and consider what is most important in life. And as important as our obligations are and our responsibilities are, those things are not the most important issue in life. The most important issue in life is being ready for eternity. So, Father, use our exposure to what Jesus had to say to challenge us to think, to evaluate, to look, to be alert, and to give thought to what is most important, and that is our eternal destiny and what will be the case when we stand before our Maker Use the reality of that truth to impact our lives this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.